Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGEN. My name is Jen Lee. And I'm Peter Liu. And we are pediatric gastroenterologists at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Today, we're going to talk about inborn errors of bile acid metabolism. A lot to learn there. What is that? We'll find out. We'll find out. And who better to teach us than Dr. Jim Hybe, another past president of NASPGEN. He is the Associate Dean for Clinical and Translational Research and Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Cincinnati. And he is the Director of the Center for Clinical and Translational Science at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Another very accomplished physician. And it was kind of cool to talk to him about um, not just the topic, but also, well, about why that topic is significant and why he decided to devote his career to that topic. So um, kind of cool. Yeah, let's check it out. On to the show. So Dr. Hybe, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Bowel Sounds. First, I wanted to talk a little bit about a personal question when it comes to research. So I read this quote from Cincinnati Magazine in 1983. Do you remember this? Yeah, very, very vaguely. And I can tell you what the context was. Please do. Yeah. yeah. This, was a, this was a time when I was a fellow, or just finished my fellowship. I did my fellowship from 1975 to 79. I was a slow learner, so I had to take an extra year doing research. And during that time, we identified a couple kids with chronic diarrhea that we didn't know what the cause was. And one of these kids... Uh, was a kid from Tennessee who'd been hospitalized almost his entire life, and he was, at that time, about three years old with chronic Mm -hmm. diarrhea. Wow. And that was a point in time when intralipid was still investigational. So we were giving intralipid. He'd lost all his central venous access Mm -hmm. lines, which was really, really a challenge because Mm -hmm. we had to find venous sites, and sometimes they were in his chest, believe it or not, where you get collateral because of superior vena cava syndrome. At any rate, uh, Cincinnati Magazine interviewed me about this boy mm-hmm. and about bile acids and bile acid metabolism because we were on the track to determine at that particular time that this child had an, an inborn error of bile acid transport of wow. his intestine. And he had a defect in the ASBT uh, transporter, which is the apical bile salt transporter. And at that time, we didn't have really any great tools to diagnose this. I mean, this was the year that PCR was invented. Yes, yes. So you and you have to think, and if you think about this, what was things like in 1983? OMG, it was so different than it is today. In fact, probably would not be podcasting like right. this. No, we would not be podcasting. But the other thing was, we were in the rudimentary phases of doing endoscopy, uh-huh. and so at that point in time, we were still using a Crosby Kugler capsule to biopsy patients for the diagnosis of celiac disease or other small bowel diseases. Let me get back to the story. Anyway, <laughs> Uh, this young this young man, though, and believe it or not, I could show you a picture down in our uh, research center wow. of a boy, one of these two boys, where we actually passed a capsule all the way into their ileum to ultimately do transport studies to prove that they wow. had a defect of this transporter. That's that incredible. was the state of the art in 1983. Huh. So Cincinnati Magazine was fascinated by this story and we were on the cusp of actually getting this child home he was here throughout my whole fellowship I had two children during that time and they got to be friends with this little boy oh, wow. and he now I've actually had contact with him recently he's about he was born in 1972 
So he's now about 48 years That's old. That's incredible. And he's survived yeah. and done remarkably well. And the comment I made was that we didn't have the foggiest idea about intracellular events. And truly, <laughs> if you think about it, we were at a very early stage in our understanding about the GI tract. We understood some basics and we understood a lot about the transport of fat and fat-soluble vitamins. Um, and we were learning at that point in time about bile acid metabolism and how it was essential for not only uh, gastrointestinal function, but also for hepatic function. Yeah. I mean, things have definitely changed over the last 30, 40 years. You took a patient that you saw in your fellowship, and you've built a career based on that. Yeah, I'd like to say that's really true, but the truth of the matter is, the real exciting thing about this particular boy and the other boy that we worked up at the time was one of these two kids was identified as having an ASBT uh, transport defect mm -hmm. genetically. So mm -hmm. I actually had an opportunity to uh, work with other investigators who then had cloned the gene, and then we were able to actually identify what the mutations were in this patient. But Realistically, it took about 20 years from the time we first saw this patient to the point in which the, the gene was cloned and ultimately we were able to make the diagnosis. So that's the cool part of this story. Yeah. You know, there's a couple of cool parts of my career. That's one of them. Mm -hmm. The other cool part was we spent a lot of time working on Rye syndrome, which mm -hmm. is a disease that doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. We recognized the spectrum of the disease and then also what were predictors of progression. And then finally, due to some epidemiological work that was done here, we identified that aspirin was associated with the development of the disease. This is, I was deviating a little bit from the topic because I heard that you guys also were really important in kind of pushing the advocacy part of that and getting labeling changed and yes, warnings. Yes, absolutely. And In fact, uh, during that period of time, I was going to Washington fairly regularly. Oh. We actually did testify about the potential relationship between aspirin. And, and quite frankly, it's all epidemiologic. We never did prove it because mm -hmm. there was never any animal model of, mm -hmm. of Rye syndrome. So we didn't fulfill Koch's postulates. But this is as close as you get. If the disease sure. goes away, you know, what can you say? Right, right. Oh, that's incredible. That is incredible. The third thing I think we did that was really cool was actually understand about bile acid synthetic defects. Uh -huh. In 1984, mm -hmm. you guys remember this really well, don't you? Right. It was a negative one. <laughs> I was not born yet. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, in 1984, we recruited Ken Setchell from the Medical Research Council in England, and he set up the laboratory here that allowed us to do urine screening for inborn errors of bile acid wow. metabolism. Uh, we started our whole program for cholic acid therapy with patients that we treated all over the world, mm -hmm. which culminated ultimately in a number of patients surviving, obviously, because when you treat them with these with cholic acid, you basically suppress their bile acid synthesis and you cure them. Mm -hmm. So uh, finally, you know, push the calendar forward a few years to times you do remember. And in 2015, it got approved by the FDA and is now available for kids that have bile salt synthetic defects, including kids with paroxysomal disorders. And so we've got an interest in paroxysomal disorders because it's a bigger population than it is kids with inborn errors of bile acid metabolism. So what is a bile acid? Bile acids are basically the body's natural detergents that the liver makes. 
and uh, they're really essential for normal bioflow and for absorption of fat and fat-soluble vitamins. We now know what happens if you don't have them because you develop cholestasis in the newborn period, typically conjugated hyperbilirubinemia. Typically, these kids will have mild to moderate elevation in their, their aminotransferases. Their GGTs tend to be low. They may have a coagulation defect because of malabsorption of fat-soluble vitamins. In addition, they may not grow well because they have fat malabsorption. And so some of these defects, some are much more lethal than others. The most common of these, which is uh, 3-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase isomerase deficiency, which is a mouthful, 3-beta-HSD for short. That's a condition where, yes, they present in the first months of life. The median age in our uh, registration trial for those patients was four years. In contrast, a more lethal defect that we see, which is uh, 5-beta reductase deficiency, I've shortened that so you don't have the whole name, the median age of presentation is three months, and that's a rapidly fatal disease if patients are not treated. The other conditions we see are less serious in terms of their consequences on an acute basis, like paroxysomal disorders. If you have a baby that has a severe paroxysomal disorder, and what we actually classically thought about Zellweger's was a little floppy kid that had no muscle tone, we now know the Zellweger spectrum disorder is quite broad, and there are certainly adults now that have the disease that have hearing impairment, visual impairment, and may have some liver involvement, and yet they're otherwise pretty well. I have a boy that I followed who is an unbelievably smart kid. He has a cochlear implant and he has visual impairment. He writes music, he writes poetry. He's an amazing kid. So there's a huge spectrum that you don't even think about. What type of evaluation do you recommend that we get? Those patients who present with neonatal typically you would get standard laboratories like a bilirubin and a direct and total, uh, hopefully a conjugated, but many labs don't measure conjugated, uh, aminotransferases, GGT, coagulation studies. And the other thing that I think that people don't appreciate is that if you have a patient that has a low GGT cholestasis, Mm -hmm. a quick thing you can do is measure serum bile acids. Mm -hmm. If they're relatively low in the presence of conjugated hyperbilirubinemia, a light bulb should go off in your head that this doesn't seem right because many patients who have cholestasis may have elevated serum bile acids and yet their bilirubin may be perfectly normal. Mm -hmm. So in that context with their elevated bilirubin, you might worry about that. So that's that group of patients. The older patients that we see sometimes are patients that have chronic liver disease. Sometimes they're mistaken for uh, autoimmune hepatitis with elevated uh, transaminases. So there actually are circumstances where they're older kids that are sort of floating around with mild transaminase elevation that nobody knows what they are. A simple thing in that context, again, their serum bile acids should still be quite low. And then you have to do more exotic testing. Today, because of the advent of whole exome sequencing, we're moving toward doing exosequencing very quickly because the turnaround time is about two or three weeks. Mm -hmm. And the differential in many of these kids with neonatal cholestasis is basically biliary atresia, and you want to be sure that you're not missing that diagnosis. However, I can tell you there's new uh, biomarkers that we've actually looked at called MMP7 that actually are very promising in terms of differentiating biliary atresia from other forms of neonatal cholestasis. But at any rate, I think 
in the end, we're, we still need to have biochemical confirmation once we make the diagnosis genetically. And we also need biochemical confirmation using urine fab uh, to determine that we've actually adequately treated them once we put them on cholic acid. So just to kind of summarize, for the neonatal cholestasis patient, kind of one of the things that stands out is the low GDT, and the differential for that is much smaller than for broadly. Absolutely, and because if you do, if you go to low GGT, right. all you're talking about is P-thick-1, P-thick-2, which are related to transport defects, the defect, the tight junction defect, and the defect that's associated with FXR. Now, there's other ones that are actually being identified, but you, those are all very rare diseases compared to allergies, compared to biliary atresia, where typically they're going to have markedly elevated GGTs at diagnosis. Right. For any fellow <clears throat> listening, this might be on your boards. Yeah, so that's excellent. If I read this and remember this correctly, there are about 15 different steps that are required for the bile acids to be formed correctly. That's correct. So it's a miracle that anybody has normal bile acids since it's 15 steps. Um, How important is it to identify exactly in that process where the defect may be? Not very. We reason that bile acid uh, synthesis is under a very fastidious feedback inhibition system. Yeah. And when you return bile acids to the liver, it suppresses synthesis. So it turns out that when patients have one of these defects, you can use that system that exists to suppress synthesis and replace them with a pool of benign bile acids, but typically would be glycine and taurine conjugated cholic acid. And uh, you suppress the production of those toxic metabolites. You give them a pool of bile acids that allows them to have normal bioflow, as well as enhancing their fat and fat-soluble vitamin absorption. And so cholic acid, which is now marketed by the name Colbam, uh, it's marketed in Europe by Colbam, but it's a K rather than a C. It's a really (laughs) weird situation. Anyway, the long and the short of it is that therapy is very effective. The only exception I can tell you is that there's an oxysterol defect, which is in the alternate pathway that appears not to be responsive to cholic acid. You would probably treat them initially anyway and consider them to be a failure and then go on to transplantation because that's one of those uniformly fatal diseases not more than a handful of cases reported. The other one is the conjugation defects, which is the end of the pathway, the last step before the patient actually excretes bile acids into the bile. That's what taurine or uh, glycine conjugation to the side chain of the uh, the bile acid molecule. Those patients won't respond to cholic acid because they can't conjugate. They can't put glycine or taurine on the steroid uh, nucleus. And in that context today, given where we are, we used to have an IND for this for or glycocholic acid. When we identify patients now, I send them to either a health food store or to Amazon to get ox bile. Because it turns out that ox bile is about 75 or 80% glycocholic acid. Really, it's not super important to know which defect it is. It is important to realize it's kind of an emergency because if it turns out to be 5-beta reductase, we know the time, the clock is ticking, and as a consequence, those patients may succumb very quickly or come to transplantation if they don't get treated effectively. Yeah. yeah. You know, as a young gastroenterologist, I've actually not seen a patient personally. Right. That well, many, had... many people will not see a patient because the, it appears from what we can judge from our screening, which has been going on since about 1984-5, um, 
about 2% of the urine samples we get actually have an identified defect. And some of those are paroxysomal disorders. And again, they're the plurality of our samples. Although we see 2%, many people have never seen a case. And I will say, um, I, other than the first patient we identified here, most every patient I've seen has been referred to us because we've identified them by screening. That is, you know, we see so many babies with jaundice. Yeah, yes. that that and a very few of them actually have neonatal cholestasis, yeah. but you always have to think about that. Right. Yes, it's really important. And even though neonatal cholestasis has a frequency of somewhere between one and ten and one and fifteen thousand in this country, um, it's still a disease that we deal with on a regular basis. Right. And it's important, particularly for these families, to actually make a diagnosis early and move forward with therapy. We used to think that that biliary atresia was not a congenital disease. And I think we now recognize that babies have this in utero, likely, mm-hmm. because Sonny Harpavad at Baylor and, and his uh, colleagues have now identified that in the first few days of life, many of these kids have conjugated hyperbilirubinemia. Right. And um, the earlier we are diagnosing these patients, the better their outcomes likely to be. Yeah. So, and then you mentioned, you know, one of those first, one of your first patients, you know, having this, you know, so he's done overall functioning very well and his outcome seems like it's pretty good. Do you feel like, so in general, once they are treated, these children with bile acid synthesis defects, um, what is their outcome typically like? Their outcome is going to be really quite good. I think they're overall very healthy. Um, In fact, one of the things we've noticed is they're typically, when we first diagnose them, they're small. Uh-huh. Uh, and when they uh, get therapy, <laughs> they get big. Yeah. And big meaning they get uh, not just tall, mm-hmm. but they get kind of heavy. Wide. So maybe there's like other reasons for liver issues. Yes. Well, somebody actually has raised, when I've shown that slide, says, well, do you think that somehow this is having some impact on one of their pathways? And I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> And then, so like you mentioned, um, so they still require some monitoring in the long term, but overall the outcomes are good. I, and I can tell you, because of the expense of cholic acid, yeah. most of the third-party payers are requiring annual uh, liver uh, enzymes, mm-hmm. and not necessarily an ultrasound, but at least uh, liver enzymes. And we do recommend that people get an annual urine fab just to verify that, that their synthesis is being suppressed. Yeah. And then just rewinding a little bit to... You mentioned um, that there's like a registry or some screening. So after you developed this interest, what? How did you think about how I can identify other patients with this problem? Well, Peter, the, the interesting thing about that is it's a difficult thing, and I can tell you one of the challenges of medicine is dissemination and implementation. We ain't too good at that. You know, if you think about it, some of the discoveries may take many, many years, and the quote is 17 years. So the, the, I think what we try to do is um, get the word out about these diseases, uh, make people understand. I think our biggest audience that we need to be sure we're approaching is pediatric gastroenterologists yeah. and some adult gastroenterologists, but mostly pediatric, so that they understand that this is part of the differential and they need to think about it. I think we're doing a fairly good job. Um, I will say... Uh, we could probably do it better. Um, this is a worldwide problem, and I'm sure there's lots of kids in other countries that are dying because nobody knows what the diagnosis. But well, we just have just finished putting together a manuscript from a group of uh, patients in China mm-hmm. 
with bile salt synthetic defects that have renal cysts. Uh-huh. And uh, we know that some of these kids do have renal cysts that resolve with therapy. Is that like a, a like a like the same process? Or don't know. We I don't think we know specifically yeah. why this is, but it's been recognized that some of these kids do have cysts. Yeah. And then, um, in terms of facilitating diagnosis, like you had mentioned, like you so so people will send patients who they want to test to your to. Cincinnati Children's or to your lab? like They'll send us samples. We generally yeah. don't physically see them. Yeah, you know, right. If right. we're actually in the process of our registration trial, we did bring a number of them here yeah. because they had to be converted from our homegrown cholic acid to a GMP-grade cholic acid. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so that was what was required by the FDA to get approval. You have to realize back in the day when we had an IND, um, and you know we could talk about the old days, but... The reality is it was like we were making up cholic acid like in a bathtub. Okay. And, not exactly. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but equivalent no. to that. Yeah. And uh, finally, our pharmacy said, you guys shouldn't be doing that. So they, they started compounding uh, capsules for us and then uh-huh. making liquid preparations. And, and the current preparation is like GMP grade. It's made mm-hmm. in, a, in a factory and done all those standards that the FDA requires. Yeah, that's wow, that's incredible. Yeah. And then, so you mentioned like like ox bile, mm-hmm. guys, similar to like polar bear bile and stuff. Like, no, yeah, how polar do you bear get that? polar bear bile is predominantly urso. Yeah, yeah. and urso just to sort of make a final point, urso is not effective for these disorders because urso doesn't suppress synthesis, and in mm-hmm. fact, it may actually enhance synthesis. So mm-hmm. it may make things look better, and your transaminases may get better, but you're not totally treating the disease. It actually, there was a paper that was published in Gastro from the French group demonstrating exactly that fact. Mm-hmm. I was thinking like, how did people, so I guess someone must have analyzed bile from Oh, I, let me, oh no, no, let me tell oh, you. Oh, okay. It's <laughs> even more complicated than that. When I was a yeah. fellow uh-huh. back in the 70s, Lilly, which is over in Indianapolis, had a product called Bilron. Okay. And Bilron was, I believe, cow bile. Not ox bile. They are very close. I'm sure they're yeah, both ruminants. Yeah. And people use these products because they think they have health benefits. So you can get these products in health food stores. They, in fact, ox bile, which is I don't know who, what company makes, but I got have I have a bottle of it on my uh, on my desk. But we actually analyzed it because the company yeah. had never analyzed it. They didn't even wow. know what was in it. And so, so we looked at, and in fact, the concentration, the total bile acid concentration in the capsules was correct, mm-hmm. but we actually did do the qualitative analysis to see what the distribution of bile acids was. Because at that point in time, I had a number of kids that had conjugation defects, one of which is a, uh, an Amish child in Ohio that we were treating, and we wanted to be sure that they had some therapy mm-hmm. because we decided we were going to stop uh, supporting the IND because there's all the paperwork associated with it and sure. we weren't diagnosing that many patients uh, and so that prompted us to figure out uh, what the composition of the bile was and right. of, of this product uh, to be sure that we were giving or recommending yeah. something that we thought was safe. I'm just wondering how do they get it? How do they get, um, oh they go to the slaughterhouses and they collect it. Yeah. 
When I was a fellow, now you have to tell you, you know, you, <laughs> you guys, this is, this is, no, this is, this is, this is a very, con- this is, uh, when I was a fellow and I was interested in bioacid transport in the intestine, I went to the slaughterhouse down here in downtown uh, Cincinnati and got like cow. cow intestine, ileum, to try to identify the transporter. Yeah. And so they're slaughtering. They're not slaughtering the number of cattle here like these. This used to be Porcopolis. Okay. And so, but you can go to a slaughterhouse in many major cities and get these products. So, you know, big companies have big slaughterhouses and they'll just collect this material. Um, wow. So That was not what I was thinking. No. Like, <laughs> Right. Oh, what were you thinking? Percutaneous like, needle aspiration. No, I, well, that would be even more complicated. Yeah. Think about putting an ox to sleep yeah, to do right. that. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, going back to that. Yeah. So, like, you mentioned going to the slaughterhouse. Like, was, so is that something that, you know, you had seen other people do? Or did you just yeah, stop? Yeah, did like, you just oh, think of that? I physically did that. Yeah, But how did you incredible. think of that idea? Well, I knew that I had to get a larger mammal with a larger mass of intestine uh-huh. because we were dealing with rats and well really mostly rats in the old days we were dealing with rats hamsters and guinea pigs and rabbits mm-hmm. none of which were very large right. and so to get a large mammal that has a lot of intestine that you could scrape and then purify you had to go to a larger mammal to get that material <sighs> that was the state of the art in the 1980s what you were asking about 1983, that was sort of the state of the art back in those yeah. days. If you read the old journal articles, you'll be fascinated. And I'm talking about old, the 50s and 60s. What kind of articles and what kind of investigations got into journals like the Journal of Clinical Investigation, which we consider to be a high-quality clinical investigation journal? Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Like three or four patients they did metabolic studies on. It's just it's so different what you read well, in the literature now compared to what was happening back you know, in the day. I'm thinking about how you have here at Cincinnati Children's you have all those all the organoids and how how different and far that is from going to the slaughterhouses back then. Yes, and in fact the beauty of that is also I could take my patients now and do organoids from them and study yeah. their diseases in organoids. Right. Which we never could possibly do back in the day. Yeah. That's incredible. That's incredible. Clinical and uh, basic science translational research in pediatric gastroenterology and hepatology, how do you feel like that's changed over time over the past few decades? Pretty amazingly. But the whole field has changed so dramatically. So the genomic aspect of this is the thing that's actually changed things dramatically. And it's changed things dramatically for liver disease particularly because we now know that many of the conditions that we thought we didn't know what they were caused by, we now know what causes them. Now... The sad thing is there aren't therapies, and we still need to work on a better understanding of the pathophysiology. So like for BCEP deficiency, PFIC2, mm-hmm. there's no therapy specifically, and there's no therapy for MDR3 deficiency. Uh, there's, no, there's no therapy for uh, classical bile or disease or PFIC1. The only condition we currently have therapy for, believe it or not, are bile salt synthetic defects. Mm-hmm. You know, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, we understand the pathophysiology much better, but we're not, we don't have therapy for it yet. Yeah. And so that's the challenge of the future. Even though we've identified these diseases, we still need to keep our heads down and try to define how we can better treat them. Yeah. 
Can you comment a little bit about, so over the course of your career, you've been an advocate for like studying, understanding these disorders that are very rare, and then finding treatment and getting people identified and treated. What are some of the challenges that come with having a, a passion for a very rare disorder, um, where maybe it's hard to convince the broader public that we need to care about this disorder? One of the values that I've learned uh, was when I started my research, we were very parochial. We didn't really reach out beyond our confines to get help. And it's pretty clear that the success of the future in terms of treating rare diseases is having collaborators in multiple sites. The Children Network, as an example, has 13 sites. I think it's 13. Because of that program, we've been able to actually study a number of cholestatic liver diseases. And those are conditions that are sufficiently rare that if you don't have a group of collaborators working together, you can't move the needle at all. Organizations like NORD actually have been really helpful. I think uh, the fact that the NIH actually has a rare disease uh, program actually is a positive as well. So orphan disease affect less than 200,000, but 40 million people have rare diseases in this country. How did you know in fellowship that patient, you know, you may not have known at that time, but how did you choose that? Like, what, what led to this career? Well, you have to understand my history was I did my residency training in Indiana. Uh-huh. Back in the day, there were very few training programs in pediatric GI. Um, I came here, interviewed in the cafeteria uh, with the two GI docs who are here, and they decided I would be okay. (laughs) And I had planned to simply do clinical gastroenterology and go back and practice clinical gastroenterology. What got me going was, quite frankly, being challenged by a faculty who said, you figure out what's wrong with this patient. Yeah. And that sort of stimulated me to uh, think pretty deeply, spend a lot of time in the library and which doesn't, you know, people don't do anymore. They simply go to the internet. But back in the day, everything was in print. And, you know, looking for articles was really a challenge. There was no PubMed. Uh, That was the day where they had these volumes that you go, called Citation Index, that you go through and look up uh, keywords and find articles. And then you go Xerox them. And then you fill your file cabinets full of, uh, anyway. The, the essence of this was, this was a very research-intensive environment, uh, and so it was an environment that was really conducive. And quite frankly, um, my interest really was spurred by a single patient, believe it or yeah. not. And then we got interested in other aspects of bioacid metabolism because of that. I think my takeaway from that is as we're mentoring students and other people coming through, uh, sometimes we focus so much on just, you know, doing the treatment or, or we help our team helps us execute the plan that we as the attending want. Mm-hmm. But what you're saying is that attending went to you and said, figure out what's wrong. Right. And I kind of love that approach. Yeah. It's just amazing like how a single person, one thing they said is stuck with you so long and that's kind of shaped your career. I used to challenge the residents and the fellows when we came up against problems on the ward. I said, you know, we don't know the answer to this do you, why don't we investigate? Right. And, and the interesting thing to me is um, there's only a small fraction that will pick up the ball. Yeah. Yeah. And it's too bad because the reason I went into academic medicine because I thought that I would be able to somehow 
uh, improve the care of patients. And that's what I'd like to think everybody is doing. Because otherwise, you might as well be in private practice. Yeah. And even in private practice, there's some really terrific docs that are pushing the needle and changing things. Yeah. It is, I think, kind of interesting when you're on the wards, for example, it's very clear as someone who's like intellectually curious about the patient compared right. to someone who's just trying to get through, get through right. it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for spending this time with you're us. You're welcome. We're so glad that we were able to interview for this episode of Bowel Sounds. Any last words that you want to give? Uh, remember that uh, we had a president uh, who I'm not sure whether he did anything very important during his tenure, and that's not Trump. Uh, <laughs> his name was Calvin Coolidge, and okay. he, he had the quote that nothing takes the place of persistence. So be persistent with what your goals in terms of your career. Awesome. Oh, I was getting you. a little bit nervous. I was like, where is this going to go? <laughs> What an awesome time talking to Dr. Jim Hybe. Want to thank him again for taking the time to sit down and talk to us? Yeah, I think, you know, had some rudimentary knowledge of the topic beforehand. I feel like now we really have an idea of like why it's important, how we're going to recognize it. And being able to identify these diagnoses can really improve and save lives. Yeah, so low GGT, check serum bile acids. Um, I think the other thing was cool is, you know, how one person telling him to do something and one patient can really completely change the course of someone's career. Well, if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. And if you like what you heard and you want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things. Three things. One, tell one person about the podcast. I'm telling you right now. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the Naspigan Foundation. You can also get there through our website at www.naspgan.org. And the money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the Naspigan Foundation is doing, including supporting the pediatric GI research and public education programs. And as always, the discussion views and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and the guest and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thanks for listening. Bye.